Good morning. How is everybody today? Okay, I appreciate you uh, daring yourself through the Arctic snow to be here today. And uh, we turned on the heat early for you, so if you're, uh, if you're not warm enough, just grab the person next to him and just pull him close to you. If you don't know him, please introduce yourself first before you do that. Let me just say that. So, uh, no, I'm glad that you're here today. And uh, hey, we're going to talk about a topic today that I don't think we quite comprehend. We're not quite sure what to do with it. And I, the topic is this. We're going to talk about kingship. Kingship. Uh, we live in a democratic society, and the reason we don't understand kingship very well is because we, we don't have a king. Matter of fact, the last one we had, we, uh, we got rid of, right? Wouldn't you say it that way? Um, we, we, we don't, we're a democracy. And even in the simplest of terms, we have the opportunity to contribute back to the political process here to help choose and to elect our officials. So having a king doesn't really make sense to us. It's peculiar to us because we have a voice in who gets to be our leader. But if you're a king, your king is the leader, whether you like that or not. And so as we begin to discuss this a little bit, we, we share a lot that we do team teaching here. And so we begin to bounce some of these ideas off of each other. And uh, we start thinking about kings or great kings. And so um, let's play a little bit of a game so we can kind of have the same conversation today. We're going to play... Uh, who is the king of? Okay, that's, that's what we'll call it today. So when I, when I ask you a question, um, you give me the response. And if you have the wrong answer, the person next to you will tell you. But um, I, I think this is the group that's going to get it right. Okay? So if I say, who is the king of the jungle? You would say, whoa, well, this is... This group's going to have some trouble. It's, it's, the, it's the lion. It's the lion. You know, it's, see, this is what I, I guess Tarzan could be. I, judges? No, no, it's uh, just the lion. Just the lion. See, we, we had trouble. We're not really even sure who. So let's do a better one, okay? We, I'm, this, you guys are going to get this one, okay? Who is the king of pop? Okay. Now, I realize after the first one was so difficult, there was some nervousness in the room. So let me ask that question again. Who is the king of pop? Okay. And then, you know, some of our staff is, I'll just say younger than me, more idealistic than me. And one of them raised the objection that perhaps you could say JT, Justin Timberlake, you know, the, the boy band kid, the Disney kid. Yeah. That's why I was like, really? And you're still on staff? Anyway, no, I mean, so... Um, Okay, so here's the question that was a real challenge, okay? Who's the king of basketball? See, uh, I, I'm just going to tell you the correct answer right now is Michael Jordan, okay? Because you can't crown the king till he's done, right? That's kind of the unspoken rule. But I, I have to tip my hat. I have to bend my knee. LeBron James is doing things in the NBA that we have never seen the likes of. And there will be a day he most likely will. But for now... I mean, this isn't in our bylaws, but just know that here in our church, Michael Jordan is still the king of basketball, okay? Just, just, just a simple understanding, okay? You can see how there's confusion, though, because even in the simplest of conversations, people have differing opinions and, and, and different reasons why, and we, we really don't get a voice, though, to determine who the, our king is. A king is determined for us. And so when you begin to think about this in the, in, in the realm and the perspective of our lordship in, in, in the sense of Jesus himself, it's a peculiar discussion because it just declares that this is his rightful place. This is the appropriate place of authority. 
And if Jesus is our king, it has incredible implications on how we should live our lives back in glory to him. Yeah, I think sometimes we ask questions, uh, you know, what, what does it mean for Jesus to be king? You know, is it, is it that Jesus is the, the, the king of my heart? I think most of us would say, you know, that maybe that just means that we have a personal relationship with God. Or some people would say, well, Jesus is the king of all spiritual truth. And that is true, but it's more than that. Or people may even say, um, Jesus is the king of all the heavenly realms. So that, that's true too, but he's not limited to heaven alone. So oftentimes when we begin to just, just to measure the affluence or influence or the power or the, the, the incredible reign of a king, sometimes we, we ask pertinent questions about his life and his death. More often than not here, when you hear us talk about the kingdom of Jesus, we often ask the question, why did Jesus die? And some of us would, would probably quickly respond with an idea that Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin. It was in Jesus that the, the wrath of God was quenched, that our forgiveness was received through his death, burial, and resurrection. It was the payment for all sin and death, and it is the key that unlocks eternal life. It was Jesus' sacrifice, his death, his burial, and res his resurrection. But we, we talk about that a lot here, right? Jesus' death. But the question can become about our king. Here's the question maybe we need to ask. Why did Jesus live? Why did Jesus live? Maybe some of us would say, well, well Jesus lived so that he could show us a good example, how to, how to kind of live life in honoring God. There's some truth to that. Or Jesus lived to, to teach us spiritual truths, kind of what ways or what, what ways we can honor God or guidelines we should put to our life that help us pursue a life after God. Or some of us would go back to the reason he died so that we would live is that he lived so that he could die so that we would live. Why did Jesus live, though? Well, the truth of the matter is, and we don't talk about this a lot, is that Jesus lived to establish God's kingdom here on earth. Jesus came to establish God's kingdom here on earth. We understand at the beginning of, uh, of humanity's time that the, the creation itself was broken. Sin entered the world. And so Jesus is coming into the world. The king taking his place is to reestablish this kingdom, to usher in the kingdom that God intended. And Jesus didn't really hide this, but most of us don't even recognize that there are these declarations, these moments where Jesus is teaching and talking about his kingship, his lordship, and how all of the world, everything that's seen and unseen, is under his reign, under his authority. Jesus was hanging out with his disciples, some of his, some of his students, some of his followers, and they just said, hey, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? The book of Luke describes this in verse 2. He opens this, and maybe you know this. It says, Jesus says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. In the opening lines of recognizing God as our Father, holy be his name, your kingdom come. God, may your will, may your reign, may your authority be seen and expressed and infiltrate every portion of creation, but especially my life, my will. Jesus came to establish God's kingdom on earth. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up uh, to a passage today in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. 
And what we're going to look at are two bookends today that are declarations or anthems of who Jesus is in his life. And if we, we miss them, we miss out on this, this kind of framing that's trying to give an understanding to why and how and what Jesus is about in his reign, in his dominion, then and for all of eternity. Matthew chapter 3 plays out like this. Jesus' cousin is out actually teaching. He's the one they call John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He's kind of known as a wild man of sorts out in the wilderness. And he's declaring this way of a king, the way of a a new kingdom that's coming. Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 says, this is what John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. It's, it's a conversation about time. It's a conversation about place. But it's a conversation directly trying to point to Jesus is here. And the calling of, an, of a preparation for a kingdom to come was that we should get our hearts right. We should repent. We should change the way we think. We should align our attitudes, that we should surrender ourselves to this king, our allegiance back to God. You ever, you ever prepare yourself for when people are coming over? We've been uh, experiencing something at our home recently. We actually, we took a break on this over spring break, but um, uh, my wife and I have just been kind of reaching out to random people and inviting them over uh, to our house um, for ice cream Sundays. okay? So we, we, we had a marketing scheme come together, had a big marketing plan, and we called it this, uh, Sundays at the Schaffners on Saturdays. It's brilliant, isn't it? kind of captures it. Some of you are like, wow, that's, I'm, I'm going to market that. It, that's what we did. We had Sundays at the Schaffners on Saturdays, and we just got people together. And what we wanted to do was just get random people who may not know each other here at the church face-to-face, and we may not know well, and, and just say, hey, let's talk. Let's, let's just get to know each other. And it's been a lot of fun for, for me and Christy, I guess I should say, because our boys have chores every weekend, okay? And so when we have people coming over, uh, we, we prepare the house a little bit differently. And notoriously what happens, I know this happens in your house, so don't give me that look, but when you tell your kids to do their chores and we say, hey, we really need you to do a good job, the first question my children ask me is, who's coming over? Who's coming over? Well, it's not your friends, I'll tell you that much right now, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we just leave it as it is. But so we, we say, well, you know, if it's, if it's my mom or, or if it's, uh, you know, somebody that we really like or uh, somebody that we're trying to make a good impression with, we'll say, just make sure you do a good job. You know, let's not, let, most of the time you just get the big chunks out of the way. Let's do all the little chunks too, okay? Let's get, let's get everything taken care of. And so we, we promise them something like they'll get a chance to have an ice cream Sunday too, and they'll get a chance to meet the people or whatever. But they put a different level of interest and effort into their preparation based on who they think is coming to our house. That's what John the Baptist is trying to do. John the Baptist has been preaching this message for maybe years even, preparing people for what's about to happen. But the prophets and the priests of old have been talking about this, talking about this, and John's trying to say, no, 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 no. It's, it's now, people. It's now. God has come to earth, and what is happening now is what we have waited for. So as time has come for the king to come, and here's what it says in verse 13. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. 
it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like, uh, descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Now, what's interesting about the day that Jesus comes to be king is that Jesus kind of takes an approach that's unorthodox to what most people expect from a king. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Nathaniel and about his understanding of Jesus and that Jesus was coming from Galilee, actually from Nazareth. Nazareth really wasn't known as being, a, you know, an elite town. It's not a place where kings or royalty come from. And so Jesus is showing up and he's asking to be baptized. And, and, and John's having this peculiar experience like, well, you're the king of kings and I'm going to baptize you. No, it should be the other way around. But Jesus is surrendering himself, submitting himself so that all righteousness might be fulfilled in this moment. What's interesting is this is kind of a backwards way that a king would be introduced. If you were from Israel, you would have been super confused because Jesus is the type of king that comes from the dirty little town down the road. Jesus doesn't come from great royalty or affluence of a town of power or influence. And certainly kings don't come and surrender themselves to somebody who might be subservient to them. Servants serve the king. Kings don't surrender to servants. And here's where the power of God's kingdom begins to show up. Here's where you begin to see the beauty of God's portrait here. What we learn from Jesus' arrival is that the power of God's kingdom comes from the king's humility. It comes from the king's humility. Not his might, not his strength, not his influence or intimidation or boldness, but his humility. That from unassuming areas, by unassuming people, a king would surrender himself to be sacrificed. And God declares this. This is my son, whom I love, and I am well pleased. Even though this is not what it's supposed to look like when a king gets uh, brought to the front and uh, to the presence of all people, in Jesus' life, we still see that God is establishing his true reign, his true dominion, and his power right in the midst of Israel. That this is the declaration, this is the announcement that the king has come. Let's go to another passage. This passage is much different, and it's a bookend towards the end of Jesus' life and career. John chapter 18, it's another record of Jesus and another person who's challenging him and another person's declaration of his influence, his power, his might. But this time we find Jesus actually arrested. He's being brought up accounts uh, for treason, basically, because he has been declared as the king of kings. He's declaring his kingdom against the nation of Rome, the power, the empire of Rome. And so uh, groups have come together and convoluted to get this, this, this hoax brought. And yet they bring him before this man named Pilate. And Pilate is kind of the the Roman governor overseeing this area and he holds all the power and influence of what might happen with Jesus. 
Look what it says in John chapter 18, starting in verse 33. Pilate then went back into his palace and he summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 36 says, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, but if it were, or if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by, by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus could probably work a little bit on his defense here. Probably could have stood up, could have said, yeah, you don't know who you're messing with here. You know, things are about to get rough and it's going to go down. And, you know, you're going to see one day that I'm the king. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't really throw up his arms in disgust, but begins to define in front of the powers and the authorities of the day, the kingdom that you have is different than the kingdom that I have. The goal, the purpose, the trajectory, the, the desire of what my kingdom is bringing in is it's much more powerful than what you hold in your temporary hands. It's much more complex, much more potent, much more eternal. Jesus does make the claim that his, his kingdom is not of this world, which doesn't exactly help in this moment. It kind of gives a picture of, okay, so is, it, is he talking spiritually? What is he trying to allude to here? But Jesus is trying to literally confront the powers and those that are the, the gatekeepers and the ones that think that they have the control and the oppression and the opportunity to leave people. He wants to confront this. And literally what Jesus is trying to confront is that this kingdom, that when he says not of this world, he means it's not like this world. His kingdom really isn't about what they're trying to accomplish. His kingdom doesn't have the passions or goals that they have. It's a different way. I mean, think about it this way. In the face of violence, Jesus refused to fight violence with violence. Or you think about it this way. In the midst of false accusations, Jesus didn't flare up, yell out, but he stood in a moment and refused the opportunity to, def to defend himself. In a world of ruthless deception and moral corruption, Jesus flipped everything upside down and he stood in those moments of conviction and conflict and was the truth of the moment. See, Jesus saw that this kingdom had a greater purpose, a greater intentionality and existence that would echo into all of eternity. Look what it says. Pilate does this in verse 16. It says, finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Verse 19 jumps and says, Pilate had a, had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. The sign was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. The chief priests, the ones who kind of concocted this whole scenario, the chief priests of the Jews protested Pilate. Don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. I love this Pilate, the one who holds the power and the authority, tips his cap to Jesus. He recognizes that his power and influence is much different than even his own power and influence. 
And the irony out of all of this is that Jesus is not the king that Israel wants, but Jesus is the king that they need. They want a king of, of brute strength and power and dominion and, and to control and to, to, to oversee the masses. And they have a humble servant who brings justice where there's injustice, compassion where there's brokenness, reconciliation where there needs to be restoration. It's almost backwards here. And what happens is by arresting and ultimately killing Jesus, they think they're signing his death warrant, but they are sealing the deal on the very purpose of what this kingdom was about. You can't defeat God's kingdom with violence or false accusations. Jesus took that on him. All the falsehood, all the brokenness, all the violence of the world in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. So what does this mean? What do you begin to think about if Jesus really is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he's bringing a kingdom to earth that's much different than the powers and authorities that may be? I mean, in essence, Jesus is, is not about our strength or our might or the name on the back of our jersey or the amount of money in our wallet, but Jesus is about leveraging our lives in a sense of obedience back to God, that our heart, our allegiance, everything about ourselves would be surrendered to God. I think it was John Cougar Mellencamp who said, I fought the law and the law, law won. Or no, I find authority and authority always wins. I'm sorry, it went to different decades. I get that. I get that. I fight authority and authority always wins. Sometimes I feel like I'm just fighting against life. Sometimes I'm fighting for my way. Sometimes I'm fighting at my job. Sometimes I'm fighting with I'm fighting, I'm fighting and fighting. And Jesus just says, I'm king. I'm in control. And your will and your way and everything about these temporary circumstances fade away in comparison to the eternal goal, to the eternal will to the eternal kingdom that Jesus is bringing into the world around us. So let me ask you today, how would we live if we truly believed Jesus was king? How would we live if we believed that Jesus was the authority over the way that we think, act, and speak, the way that we live our lives, the way we, we engage in relationships? How might God leverage us and rearrange us and focus us into the world that we're a part of? I mean, when you, when you look for things about, that make statements about why Jesus came, you, you're reminded of these verses like in Luke chapter 19 where it says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He had a focus on others. Or maybe you look to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So many times we're holding on to everything that we want for our will and our way, but have we surrendered it back to our king? Have we put it in front of him? Do we live with the hope and the optimism and the trust that God's will and God's way is bringing what's best for our world and even our eternity? There's a phrase that some of us were talking about this week that I think tends to be pretty common for Christians today. 
I mean, we're, we're, we're unsure about how to respond to current events or current scenarios when suffering comes into the world or, or, or evil comes into the world or things in our world go the way we shouldn't. We're, we're not really sure how to respond. And the, the conversation we were talking about is the idea of, of Christian nihilism. Now, these two terms seem to be in conflict, don't they, right? As a Christian, when we have a hope of, of joy and peace eternal, of all things being reconciled, of all of creation being surrendered back to God, his will and his way, his dominion, so that we might live for his glory. And nihilism kind of lives with the, there's no hope. There's no real peace. All we have is this. And so it shows up in the church sometimes. Maybe, maybe you've heard it this way. Maybe a tragedy happens in our, in our community or in our culture, and we see it on TV, and we, we say things like, well, until Jesus returns, it'll never get better, right? Or we see something happening in our community or something, and we say, well, what can you expect when evil runs rampant in the world that we're a part of, right? You start hearing the despair, and despair becomes contagious. The reality is is that God's not trying to save us and pull us from this world. He's actually trying to place us very purposely and intentionally to be a part of the world that we're a part of. We should be the agents of hope. We should be the agents of grace. We should be the people of compassion. We should be the ones that bring justice to the world when there is injustice. Now, let me say it this way. Jesus didn't save you from the world. He saved you for the world. That his will and his way and his life would so permeate the throne room of your heart that everything that you see and all that you would hear and everything that you might touch and experience, you might surrender back before God and say, God, have your will, have your way in me. And through that surrender, we might become obedient, might become faithful, that we like Jesus, may take on the form of a servant, being obedient even to our death. So let's get ready to move to our, our time of response, okay? If Jesus was king, there would have to be the admittance that we're not, right? Right? If Jesus were king, and we think that he is, there would have to be a change of our own allegiance. If Jesus is king and we are not, then when Jesus speaks into our life, whether it be through his word or whether it be through a, a friend that's challenging or growing us, when, when, if Jesus is king, when we become aware of the king's heart and the king's will and the king's desire for our lives, then we should be surrendered. But there's a crazy thing in our, in our relationship with God that God does not force himself on us. He does not bully us into submission. He does not intimidate us by his might or strength. But through the life of Jesus, he says, come and follow me. We get to walk with the king that as we learn who he is and who we're not, we get a chance to grow with him. But if I was transparent, and I, I like to be, I would have to admit that sometimes my submission to the king is just a little bit more submission than your submission to the king. You know what I'm saying? 
oh, I don't deal with that, or I don't struggle with this. But I think we all, if we took our hearts and laid them out before God or expressed the thoughts of our minds, the feelings of our soul, we would admit that there are, there are things that are under lock and key that we've not told the king about. Not that he doesn't know. Sometimes it shows up in the, in the struggle in our home. Maybe there's a, sense of, uh, there's a sense of real anger. There's been woundedness. And for the, for the sake of your marriage or for the sake of your kids, there needs to be a reconciliation. But for whatever reason, it just goes under the rug. But if Jesus was king, he might ask you to roll it back, to bring it out, to apologize, to be the bigger person, to move towards forgiveness, to let go of our grudge. Because Jesus said stuff like this, forgive others as I have forgiven you. If Jesus was Lord, we'd probably think about some of the things that happen at work sometimes. Funny thing happens, even at this place, that sometimes who we are on stage or who we are in the classrooms, we're, we're, we're real people in our office complex. Sometimes people annoy me. And my heart gets frustrated. My mind gets ugly. But if Jesus was king, and I think he is, it would confront us in those moments where maybe we have a, a tension or a discord. Or maybe when we want to bow up and we want to use our own authority for our own influence rather than submitting ourselves to hear what's being said, to feel what's being felt. It happens at work. It happens at play. It happens in public. But it grows most often in private. See, the truth of the matter is, is, if I asked you if Jesus is king, and we think he is, and there's any area of our lives that we need to put under the authority of the king, that each one of us have a part that we, the poker face comes up, we act like somebody's not talking to us, but we know. We know in the recesses of our hearts that this is, this is us. And it's not been surrendered. Sometimes it's as obvious as not having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you go, you know what? I go to church. It's nice. It's cool. Uh, I, I like the message. It challenges me. It inspires me. But I, I'm just kind of here because I like the way I feel when I'm done. I get that. But if Jesus is king and holds eternity in his hands, isn't it worth asking the question, what does it look like to surrender my life back to him? Or sometimes I find people who say, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I've been going to church for a while. I've been growing quite a bit. And we start to talk about this picture of surrender, this picture of sacrifice, this picture of, of, of going public with our faith and allowing the forgiveness of sins and the power of the Holy Spirit to be expressed through a, a picture like baptism. And we push that away. I think privately because we know at the end of the day that the portrait of baptism is the picture of our death of our authority, our will, and our way. And what we're saying is, God, have your way in me. Well, we could put this in a lot of different circumstances. In dating relationships, 
high school friendships, how we manage our wallet. And the question is this. If Jesus is king, and we think that he is, is there an area of your life that you need to surrender? If you're new with us, you haven't uh, been a part of what we're about to do. We've made a, a change in our worship experience where we do a couple songs towards the end and we allow this time for God to challenge our hearts and wrestle with where we are. And today's a heavy day because literally what we're saying is, God, we admit that there are authorities in our lives that are there to help us make us great servants. And God, I'm a rebellious one. You know it. But this time of response... We ask people to come forward and pray, and many, many will come and pray. Some will say a prayer of thanksgiving, some will say a prayer of confession, and some will say, God, you know my week. Help me. Some will go to these tables where we have the bread and the juice. There were the reminder that God's body was broken, his blood was shed. The, the bread represents his body, the juice represents his blood. And as we eat those, we're reminded that it's Jesus' sacrifice, the king's death that gave us life, that established all authority and all dominion, that... We're no longer bound by our sin or death because our king washed them away. But we're adding something to our worship time here in this response. At the end of our services, we often take up an offering. We just thought, you know, it's kind of odd that we, we do this time of response and then we pass these plates in front of people. And it, maybe we should change that in the season that we're in as far as the church. And so we put offering boxes around the room. They're these black boxes with a little white slit, and you can see them off to the side and in the back. And in our time of worship, it's our time to, to come to pray, to come take communion, or to give our offerings back to God. We want this to be our response. These to be our expressions back to God. These, these responses back to God, we follow. We obey. God, make us faithful. And God, grow us into your likeness. And so what's about to happen is the band's going to come forward and they're going to sing a couple songs and I'm going to invite everybody to stand up and sing and spontaneously people will begin to move to these stations. Some will, some will go to drop off their offerings. Some will go to take communion. Some will go to come pray. Some will do all three. But this is your response back to God. This is your chance to continue in worship beyond the singing. And if you don't have the ability to, to come and respond, there will be people that will come to you that bring communion to you. But if Jesus is king, and we think that he is, what do you have of your life that you know you need to surrender, give up, sacrifice, so that he may have reign and dominion over your life to bring hope, peace, Grace, justice, the good news, salvation to those around you. Let's stand and sing.